1: It's the early days of the pandemic in 2020, and Dr. Daniel Cherto has a new patient, a 26-year-old male who was hospitalised with chest pain.
2: He did not present with the typical COVID symptoms, you know, the shortness of breath, the fever, and all this other stuff. It was chest discomfort. And he tested
1: negative on, on multiple occasions. Dan runs the Emerging pathogen section at the National Institutes of Health in Bethesda, Maryland. And if you're a COVID case at his lab you're not there for treatment, you're the subject of an autopsy. Dan and his team are studying this young man as part of a bigger mission to figure out where in the body the coronavirus goes. He thinks that by tracing the virus's path and seeing what it does, it can understand why it's causing disease and how to stop it. Think of it like he's a detective trying to collect evidence and looking for the MO of a killer before it can strike again
2: primary questions that we're trying to address, the initial questions, are really the uh, cellular distribution of the virus across the body and the brain. So in other words, exactly where does the virus go? What cell types does it affect? And really, really importantly, how long
1: does the virus stay there? His team need to work fast to get participants like his new patient. They have about 24 hours after someone has died to study them. Certain tissues degrade quickly after death, destroying the evidence. Getting these patients in that time has become a massive logistical undertaking. They first talk to the family to get their approval. From there, they make arrangements with a funeral home to transport the remains to the NIH Clinical Centre in Bethesda. We
2: set up a 24-hour a call schedule where you know, I might hear about these cases at 2 o'clock in the morning, communicate with our amazing, amazing admissions department who would facilitate our contract funeral home going out in the middle of the night, bringing bodies here so that my team would be suited up at 9 o'clock in the morning.
1: On this spring day in 2020, Dan and his team are in a secure airlock chamber wearing astronaut-inspired protective gear as they examine their new patient. The man died at the hospital, and tests were negative for the coronavirus, so he doesn't fit the definition of a COVID-related fatality. Instead, he died of something called viral myocarditis, or inflammation of the heart muscle. But Dan says there was a reason he still wanted to study him. And at that
2: time, you probably remembered there were a number of reports in the literature, and there were some articles coming out and, of imaging of the heart and some autopsies, you know, but case reports of viral myocarditis being an unusual but, but present complication of
1: COVID. As they examine his body and heart, Dan says there's good evidence COVID is the culprit. Not only that, the patient offers clues about another condition linked to the coronavirus. It's called multisystem inflammatory syndrome. It occurs mostly in children after a SARS-CoV-2 infection, but it's been reported in adults as well. Dan says it's a condition that can arise unexpectedly after a mild case of COVID.
2: They show up later with sometimes life-threatening inflammation in different organs. So in a way, he fits into that category and say, well, what's driving that?
1: And that is the point of Dan's work. Performing these autopsies is like recreating police sketches in more and more detail. With every autopsy, the picture gets clearer of what COVID is capable of doing across our bodies and what impact it may have on them in the long run.
2: Is there going to be you know, some low-level or subclinical injury to your heart that then may manifest differently later in life? I don't know. Is there going to be some subclinical effect on your brain that are going to cause Neurocognitive uh, issues later in life that perhaps are not immediately noticeable or detectable. If you're going to begin to conceive of ways to prevent or treat those manifestations, either in the group that the next group that might be exposed, or among the group that are suffering, you you need to understand mechanism. You need to understand what the drivers are.
1: But this work has a long way to go. Scientists like Dan are just starting to learn the biological means by which SARS-CoV-2 manages to affect virtually every organ system in the body. Those infected can experience symptoms lasting months, and potentially years. The condition is called Long COVID, and Dan's research could help us understand how to better combat it. But science is an iterative process new information or clues have to be checked and validated before they're accepted as proof. And right now, there's a ton of information, but not a lot of admissible evidence. Conflicting theories have popped up over the last year and a half, which only shows how much more fact gathering needs to be done. And resources for critical research, like autopsies, that help us understand new diseases have been stretched thin. It means disease detectives have fewer tools to use in their pursuit of the killer.
2: I'm not here to service a fear monger. I mean, that's not that's not my thing. It's just that these are some underanswered questions.
1: I'm Jason Gale, Chief Biosecurity Correspondent and a senior editor at Bloomberg News. From the Prognosis Podcast, this is Breakthrough.
3: Pathology is one of the fundamental building blocks of medicine.
1: This is Dr. Linda Isles. She's the head of forensic pathology services at the Victorian Institute of Forensic Medicine. It's like a medical examiner's office, but this one in Melbourne is the largest of its kind in Australia. Linda is a petite, bespectacled woman with short salt and pepper hair. She finished medical school at the University of Tasmania more than 20 years ago, and then went on to train in anatomical pathology. She estimates she probably did 200 to 300 autopsies during her training.
3: Which, if you compare that to kind of really old school, sort of back in the day, then that might not seem like very many. But if you compare that to um, anatomical pathology trainees now, then that is a very large amount.
1: These days, pathology trainees aren't even required to do autopsies.
3: Fundamentally autopsies are expensive procedures. I think autopsies have been slightly undervalued by clinicians over a number of years, even decades perhaps. And as less autopsies are requested, uh, less pathologists have experience with autopsies.
1: This points to a big problem happening in modern medicine. Autopsies have been the bedrock of medical science since at least the 1500s. But today, Sophisticated imaging and other modern diagnostic tools and hospital cost-cutting have turned them into a dying science. Linda says there are a few reasons why autopsies have started to go out of style. One of them is that facilities are expensive to maintain at a safe standard.
3: So, it's this spiral of uh, decreased experience and therefore decreasing confidence, and then underutilization of the facilities, leading to some of the facilities essentially being mothballed. And then, when you want to reinstitute them, then they're no longer really safe for modern practice. So, it's sort of like this catch-22. And now, you know, we are really left with the generation of pathologists that have really quite limited autopsy experience, and therefore their confidence in performing autopsies uh, safely is is significantly diminished.
1: This lack of expertise was only exacerbated during the pandemic. In the first few months of the outbreak, health authorities warned that doctors could become infected while performing autopsies and handling virus-laden tissues. That led to half of these units shutting down in the US the same sort of scenario played out across the world.
3: In Germany, initially, it was like, no, we will definitely not autopsy these COVID patients. And then a bunch of pathologists said, no, we have to do this because this is a new disease process. And then they just did a complete switcheroo and funded the autopsy program, which is where a lot of the really valuable data has actually come out of.
1: Among the first 4 million fatal COVID cases worldwide, only several hundred were autopsied And the findings reported in medical journals. That delayed getting answers to some crucial questions about COVID-19 and its effects on the body. The good news is that detailed post-mortem investigations are picking up now. Linda says this could also bring greater awareness the value of autopsy research.
3: Whether it's just going to be a sort of short-term thing or whether it's going to translate into something kind of more meaningful, I mean I can only hope that it's going to be the latter. But, you know, the idea that, you know, novel infectious diseases are a thing of the past is, you know, I think this has kind of brought this certainly front and centre for people.
1: Not all doctors waited so long before returning to autopsies. Disease detectives like Dan Cherto accepted the risk early on in the pursuit of answers. Most of Dan Chirteau's team is made up of trainees. And at the start of the pandemic, he wanted to give them the chance to contribute from home if they felt more comfortable working that way.
2: I said, we're an emerging pathogens lab, like there's a pandemic. If you want to work remotely, that's okay. But for those of you that want to be present on site, these are the things we're going to be focusing on. It's elective, stick around. And with rare exception, you know, everybody's like, we're on
1: deck. Dan himself is used to working in dangerous environments. In 2014, he was in Liberia during the Ebola crisis, caring for patients and later studying the virus. Before that, he worked on the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic virus. His experience provided a grounding in biosafety that's carried through to his personal life. Dan says he takes precautions, like wearing a face mask, when he can't physically distance to prevent getting SARS-CoV-2.
2: I'm not a risk-averse person. I'm a believer in calculated and controlled risk, right? But I know that my absolute preference for myself, my family, my loved ones, my colleagues, my kids, I got an eight-year-old and a 12-year-old, my preference is for them not to be infected.
1: Dan says he applied what he and others learned from the Ebola outbreak to understanding COVID-19. It
2: started with this idea that first we got to go find where this virus is going what it's doing in those places and then we got to try to link it back to what we're seeing clinically and what is coming out with volumes and volumes of evidence that we're all struggling to assimilate and trying to put those pieces together to to tell a cohesive story about the mechanisms that are contributing to severe acute illness in some mild or asymptomatic disease in others and in a reasonable portion of the population of survivors, long-term symptoms that are really distressing.
1: Dan and his group are also trying to figure out how the virus and the body interact.
2: Which is another way of saying in, in all those locations that you found evidence of virus, uh, what was the body's response? Is there an infiltration of immune cells? Even in the absence of immune cells, is there evidence of damage within those tissues or organs, et etc.? Cetera, et cetera? to begin to better understand that relationship between the virus and the host, the host response. The more you understand that relationship, theoretically, the better equipped you will be to design therapies and interventions that might mitigate aspects of the disease course.
1: These postmortem exams do carry risk, but the pathologists from the National Cancer Institute actually performing the autopsies have decades of experience.
2: These are the gentlemen, the physician's, and their trainees that, that were here doing autopsies during the AIDS era. And these guys were in there doing autopsies on hundreds of patients with this new disease HIV AIDS. So we have now the benefit of working with that group here now, decades later,
1: lots of experience. These aren't typical autopsies, though. They're done over three hours in a secure facility that's required for work involving microbes that can cause serious and potentially lethal disease.
2: So our group pathologists they designed home design a grain box which is basically plexiglass with a glove it's like a glove box
1: bioengineers on the NIH campus custom built an enclosure that fits over the head and shoulders of the deceased to contain aerosols when the brain is removed
2: it cut through the skull it's a little bit morbid but there's aerosolization right so you don't want to overly contaminate the environment so implementing this thing and working and this takes some time
1: The seven or so doctors, scientists, and technicians working inside the autopsy suite wear multiple layers of personal protective equipment, usually a plastic apron over a surgical gown over an impermeable coverall over surgical scrubs. Sometimes arm sleeve protectors are worn. They also don three pairs of gloves and two pairs of shoe coverings. And instead of N95 masks, they're breathing through controlled air purifying respirators, which provide hepa filtered air under a hood that fits over the head and shoulders. It's cumbersome, but it's not the only aspect of these COVID autopsies that makes the work painstaking.
2: We're sampling way above and beyond what is done in any sort of typical autopsy. We sampled almost a hundred different regions within the body, across the whole body and brain. So a hundred different areas And for each one of those areas, we collected and preserved adjacent pieces of tissue in different ways that are amenable to various downstream analysis that preserve the tissues in a better way.
1: It's a ton of time and energy to analyze these samples, but time is important. The first cases of long COVID happened over a year and a half ago, and only more are developing. The sooner we get results from autopsies like Dan's, the sooner we'll begin to address the long-term effects of COVID-19. Dan's research will not only help us understand what the causes are, but how to counter them. There are many theories on why people continue to suffer from a multitude of symptoms long after a coronavirus infection. Some are easy to explain, others are a mystery. For example, it's known that if COVID gave you a severe case of pneumonia, your lungs could have scarring that might reduce lung capacity. That's an unfortunate consequence of acute respiratory distress syndrome that can also occur with the flu. If you were unlucky enough to need intensive care, that's linked to muscle weakness, memory problems, and a raft of other conditions referred to as post-intensive care syndrome. And if you were really unfortunate and needed mechanical ventilation, that's long been associated with post-traumatic stress disorder. But these aren't the problems baffling doctors and researchers.
4: The biggest surprise of COVID is that people who were not in the intensive care unit, people actually who were never needed to be hospitalized, are still having persistent symptoms.
1: This is Dr. Walter Koroshetz, who we heard from in our last episode. He heads the National Institute of Neurological Disorders and Stroke in Bethesda. Walter says it's this group of patients, the ones with unexplained fatigue, brain fog, weird heart palpitations, and body aches and pains, who also represent the largest pool of patients who are persistently unwell as a result of the
4: pandemic. The long COVID have fatigue. That's the primary uh, complaining factor. That's true about the post-ICU cases as well. Fatigue is a major problem. But the long COVID symptom complex of fatigue, trouble with memory, trouble with thinking quickly, executive function, uh, trouble with sleep, pain syndromes, uh, sometimes in uh, exercise intolerance. Those are the features of this, this syndrome that uh, we don't have good explanations for at this point.
1: In some ways, the disease pattern many long COVID sufferers experience resembles mono, or infectious mononucleosis. It's called glandular fever, where I am in Australia, and some people refer to it as the kissing disease, possibly because it's spread through saliva and often occurs in teenagers. The culprit is usually the Epstein-Barr virus. It can cause fever, swollen glands in the neck and armpits, and a sore throat. Most cases of mono are mild and resolve in their own in one to two months, but Walter says that's not always the case.
4: With infectious mononucleosis, there is another syndrome which you probably heard about called myalgic encephalomyelitis, chronic fatigue syndrome, and symptoms are very overlapping between what long COVID folks are complaining of and what happens in ME/CFS. It's just that ME/CFS has a six-month period; you have to have had those symptoms for six months but it looks like people are moving into that space. Walter
1: says researchers have been trying for years to figure out the causative driver of that longer-term illness after infectious mono.
4: Now with the 34 million people with COVID, it's a tremendous challenge now that we have to take up to try to figure that out. There is a greater chance that we're going to figure it out now because we have this opportunity to study so many people and to try and understand what differentiates those who get better quickly versus those who have these persistent symptoms. So the hope is that we can get some answers that would allow us to try different treatments to see what helps, and then potentially also learn something about what causes ME-CFS as well.
1: Congress is giving the National Institutes of Health $1.15 billion over four years to find answers. Walter, along with Dr. Anthony Fauci from the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, and Dr. Gary Gibbons from the National Heart Institute are co-directing the research.
4: There's a clinical team, there's an autopsy team, there's an electronic health record team I know, there's a big data team, and there's probably a couple of others. So there's I think the estimate was as 300 people have been working on this project since November.
1: The amount of money Congress has set aside to study long COVID seems a lot, but it pales compared with the trillions of dollars the pandemic has cost already, and the economic toll it will have decades into the future. Some estimates suggest that more than one billion people around the world have been infected with the coronavirus. We don't know yet what proportion of them will develop long COVID or the duration of their symptoms.
5: My gut feeling is that you're probably are close to a 10% figure at about six months out.
1: This is Dr. Avi Nath. He's the clinical director at the National Institute of Neurological Disorders and Stroke, the one Walter heads.
5: People do recover over a period of time or spontaneously too. But most often, if you're not better by six months, then the chances of getting better are become really less.
1: Avi says the impact on individuals families and societies will be huge.
5: I mean nobody can do the calculations for you.
1: Yeah. You know?
5: But it's a drain on society at every single level. I mean it affects women more than men. It affects people in their average age is forty. That's the most productive years of your life. And so you can see that the impact, worldwide impact of this is unbelievable. You couldn't translate it to, to money. <laughs> the impact is uh, I mean, the economic toll, the psychological toll, every aspect of society
1: is going to touch. It's why figuring out the cause and ways to treat and prevent long COVID are so critically important. Avi says there could be two main driving forces behind the clinical manifestations. One is that the coronavirus manages to persist in the body somewhere, somehow, and that its lingering presence is damaging the body directly, or it's triggering an immune response that's causing the damage. Another hypothesis is that the coronavirus has sent the immune system haywire, and it's this dysregulated immune response that's driving long COVID.
5: I think they're all reasonable hypotheses, but they're not exclusive. They could be interrelated.
1: Avi's been researching chronic fatigue for years and now he's also trying to understand it as well as other ailments in long COVID patients.
5: One of the interesting features about this illness is that if you look at it, the people who develop these long haul symptoms are often not the individuals who are hospitalized and were sick and on a ventilator and stuff like that. These are individuals who actually most often they never went to the hospital and they were at home and during that time, they had a relatively mild illness in the acute phase and they recovered from it.
1: Avi says that the people who were sick enough to require hospitalisation probably mounted a strong immune response that helped them to eventually recover and importantly, get rid of the virus. But if you had a mild illness, perhaps you never mounted a strong enough immune response.
5: You thought, oh, you know, I escaped this. But in reality, you never got rid of the virus.
1: Viruses can remain in their infectious form in a range of diseases, from AIDS to chickenpox to Ebola. Some scientists say that the coronavirus may cause a persistent infection in places like the gastrointestinal tract and the nose, but there's no consensus among scientists that that's the case. Avi says another possibility is that what's persisting are viral particles that may not be completely replicating, but are instead expressing some features of the virus.
5: Now, what the body is going to see it as a foreign object, it's going to try to mount an immune response against it. So you get this chronic immune activation that persists in these individuals. But it's never good enough to get rid of it because they never got rid of it in the first place. But it's enough to start causing collateral damage.
1: RV sees the same pattern of immune activation and exhaustion in chronic fatigue or ME-CFS patients.
5: They look very much like these long-haul COVID patients. And they have the similar problems. They usually start off with some viral infection then they recover from it. And then this thing persists forever.
1: The field of researchers working to unravel COVID's mysteries is growing and it's bringing in expertise from all kinds of areas, neurology, cardiology, pulmonology, and infectious diseases. That includes HIV medicine. Professor Steve Dietz has been researching a cure for HIV for almost 30 years at the University of California, San Francisco. When the pandemic hit, Steve took notice.
6: We had no idea what was going to go on with SARS-CoV-2, but we knew it was a big deal. And we had a good sense that there were probably going to be some long-term consequences. Everybody was focused on short-term.
1: Steve began enrolling patients in a study aimed at identifying how SARS-CoV-2 affects long-term health.
6: Some have long COVID and some don't. And we're beginning to do the biology. And one of our leading hypotheses is that the virus does persist in some people for some reason and that that persistent virus initiates an inflammatory process. At the heart of all this has always been the concern that there is something that persists and stimulates that abnormal response.
1: Steve thinks the coronavirus might be leaving traces behind. It could be viral protein, strands of its genetic material, or even bits of antigen that the immune system responds to.
6: We don't think it's virus replication, but I guess it could be virus that's replicating in target cells and tissues. We always thought that that was um, a potential reason for why this symptom persists.
1: Steve says Dan's research, when it's published, could have significant implications for treatment.
6: If the experts out there tell me Yes, we think that there is a persistent repository of virus protein, nucleic acid, or even virus replication. Then, for me, it's easy to say, okay, well, then, a thousand ways that can cause long COVID, we need to give people an antiviral, we need to give people antibodies or a therapeutic vaccine and see if they get better. And that's what we're planning on doing. But we need more rationale. We need a paper from the NIH saying, You know, with NIH level standards, yes, indeed, some people have virus. And if they tell me that these people with virus also had symptoms, well, that would be helpful.
1: Steve says circumstantial evidence supports the concept that there's something persistent that's causing long COVID.
6: There's all these anecdotes out there about people who have long COVID and get a vaccine and get better. And the only way to explain that is if there's persistent virus that's not being cleared by the immune system and the vaccine makes the immune system better and the virus goes away and they're healthier. And if we can prove it, then me as a, as a clinical trialist can do all the clinical trials. We can look at any of these antivirals, any of these antibodies, any of these vaccines. They all should help. So it's a very important study, and I hope it comes out soon.
1: Deep in his lab, Dan Schurto and his team have amassed more than 10,000 autopsy specimens for meticulous study. Their analysis is beginning to yield some answers to the many questions around long COVID and what causes it. They know that the research tools we'll have, in years from now, will provide even greater insight, which is why a big part of their work has involved careful preservation of the samples collected from each patient. For instance, some tissues go into a solution that preserves nucleic acid, the virus's genetic material.
2: And then we use a highly sensitive PCR assay to query presence or absence of raw RNA in those tissues.
1: And Dan's group is going further to see if the virus that's collected from different areas of the body is still infectious.
2: Can we actually get viable virus? Can we grow virus from, from these different sites? We've done, you know, simply put, a, a much more extensive sampling than, than others have.
1: The data from the biospecimens are also matched with patient records, including genetic tests used to identify certain individual variations in a person's immune system.
2: We have individuals as young as six years old, very, very sad, to beyond 90 years old. It's diverse you know, across gender and race and ethnicity. It's diverse across a really important parameter, which is When we perform the autopsy relevant to symptom onset from COVID,
1: there have now been dozens of studies published based on autopsy findings that have added data points to a map showing where the virus is going and what it's doing across the body.
2: Others have done a very good job of creating the outline of that map of where the virus goes, what cell types, you know, how long it sticks. We intend to put some more spots on that map, you know, to help. Help kind of fill it in, both as far as different locations, different cell types, you know, period of time, you know, that that researchers can then use moving forward.
1: It's already clear to Dan that SARS-CoV-2 spreads through the body wider than previously thought in patients with mild or even no symptoms.
2: I think we're we're operating under the impression that for the most part, the virus is contained in the respiratory tract, perhaps just the upper respiratory tract, never makes it to its lungs and then doesn't go past that, right? Like it doesn't get into the bloodstream, it doesn't distribute to other parts of the body, and then you clear it, you know, you're better. I'm not sure that's the case. There's not a lot of evidence in this space.
1: Dan says some of the patients who died with, rather than from COVID, will provide some insight into that.
2: Those are issues that we cannot just assume one thing. And the implications of that are important because, If you are mildly symptomatic or asymptomatic, but you actually do have period of viremia where the virus tropes to different parts of your body and then, you know, you feel better, but actually the virus is persisting for a certain period of time and causing injury or the body's response to clear that virus is contributing to some, you know, pathogenic mechanism that is, you know, manifesting as long COVID symptoms. We gotta gotta know that, right? We gotta... We gotta know that because without knowing it, how are we gonna address it, right? And so, so we gotta to begin to kind of turn these pages of the book, like peel the layers off the onion and try to answer some of these questions.
1: Dan says a manuscript based on the young man with myocarditis is under evaluation by a scientific journal. A paper on what his team found looking specifically at the eye is undergoing co-author review and will be submitted shortly. His larger project providing a map of where the virus is going in the body is pending more data across anatomical sites. Dan says he expects this last bit of information shortly and then can finish a manuscript. But evidence pointing to the causes of long COVID are of little help to patients unless the findings can yield ways to help them. Next week on Breakthrough, doctors and physical therapists in New York are working on strategies to help long haulers manage their symptoms. Even though a cure remains elusive, thinking outside the box is bringing a variety of innovative and successful therapeutic options.
5: Some of our patients who have been discharged for the longest are experiencing relapses. So is this something you have to manage for your entire life or is this something that you're going to have to manage for the next five to ten years or is this something that we can rehabilitate and we'll discharge you and you'll never have to think about it again so these are all open questions right now
1: This episode of Prognosis Breakthrough was written and reported by me Jason Gale Topher Forges is our senior producer. Carl Kevin Robinson Jr. is our associate producer. Our theme music was composed and performed by Hannes Brown. Rick Shine is our editor. Francesca Levy is the head of Bloomberg Podcasts. Be sure to subscribe if you haven't already. And if you like this episode, please leave us a review. It helps others find out about the show. Thanks for listening.